Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Hey, this is Oteal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Welcome back to comes a time. This is Mike. This is Oteal. We had a really, really beautiful talk with uh, Denise Kaufman, bassist for a band called the Ace of Cups that was an all-female band Back in the day at Ground Zero with everybody, Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, like you name it. And they played with all of them, recorded with all of them, opened for all of them. They opened for Hendrix. And uh, they got they came back together like in their 70s. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, finally put their album out because I think they broke up a long time ago because the band didn't up get... Uh, didn't end up getting a record deal. Mm-hmm. and um, But Denise in particular, her story is really amazing. Just uh, I, I love how she just, the, her trajectory through uh, her life um, was fascinating. And um, I don't want to give it away, but uh, this, this interview surprised me, I have mm. to say. Yeah. And uh, I definitely, it definitely felt like meeting a, a family member, you know, in this whole like music family yeah, that I her, never knew about. Right. And her experience with Keezy and his naming her Mary Micro Graham <laughs> was kind of yeah. neat. And that whole thing. And it was just such a like, yep, that's this is all we're all in the same web. And she's also someone who I mean, she's the baby of her band and she's 70, 74. 74. I, oh, I, I think that's, yeah. you know, in this in this kind of uh there's no such thing as age. It's all in your mind. And I love that about her. So you guys are going to love it. Um, Enjoy the episode. If you're enjoying us, check us out at patreon.com slash comes a time pod for a bonus episode and a lot of upcoming great features. And uh, we're with Osiris Network here, home to amazing podcasts and uh, check all them out at osirispod.com. Enjoy Denise, everyone have stay safe. Have a great week. Peace. Denise, tell us where you are in Hawaii. I'm on the north shore of Kauai at, in uh, Kilauea Farms is the area. It's a little <sighs> farmland outside of the little town of Kilauea. Yeah. That's a lot of farms around there, huh? I have a friend in Kauai, and they have a little organic farm. Who's that? Oh, 
Bill? I, I can't tell. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows <laughs> anyway. We're about, you know, like a quarter of a mile from each other. <laughs> so you totally, you know, Bill and Amy and all you guys. See, that's awesome. Once yeah, again, you're ground zero. It's a family affair. So what do you grow on your farm? We grow um, organic. Well, first of all, we have a big garden, huge, you know, really good sized garden. But then we have fruit trees and we grow macadamia nuts, avocados of different varieties, lemons, tangelos, ten, uh, tangerines, orange, grapefruit, lychee, star fruit, long gone. Oh, my God. Yeah. Sounds like heaven to me. I brought this to show you. Nice. <laughs> that's a big avocado, huh? Is that an avocado? Yeah. All right. They aren't all, I mean, we have all different varieties, but that's kind of one of the bombers. Now, does the pit, does the pit match the size? Like, does uh, it still have just a normal pit? There's just a whole bunch of meat in that. In that. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> Denise, I spent some time on the big island. Um, 2006, I think. I went out there by myself. And it was like visiting four places at once, right. you know, like there's Kona and Hilo, but I rented a car and I drove up Volcanoes National Park and I didn't realize how high of a mountain that was. And the rental car kind of started to putter out a little bit when I started to hit the peak and I was burning gas way faster than I thought I was going to. So I almost ran out of gas at the top of the peak. So okay. I put it in neutral and just cruised down the the mountain and I had to like e-break it for like rams and sheep that were crossing the road. And I was above the clouds driving down into the clouds. It's such a beautiful man. It's paradise. God, you live in such an amazing part of the world. How long have you been there? Well, I came to Kauai um, for the summer when I was 15. I, I was born and raised in San Francisco, but I really wanted to learn to surf and sit and I, so I kind of convinced my parents to let me come to this program that was at the local high school. And so I spent the summer here between my junior and senior year of high school and literally had to be dragged off the island. <laughs> so I'm not going to leave. And then life unfolded. You know, a lot of other things happened. I went to school. I mean, graduated, went to, went to Berkeley, got arrested, got on the bus, joined a band, you know, a number of bands. So it took a while, got married, got separated. And then um, my daughter and I moved here when she was two in 1972 after Asa broke up. So, so I, I lived here then for like 11 years and then went to LA and went to music school. And I've been coming back and forth since then. And right now I've been here since last March, since COVID started. I just, we have this little family farm and my daughter and her husband um, are more full-time here than I am. They have a little music store in Hanalei, this really cute, wonderful little venue. So I came here the, when uh, COVID started and I never left. So, so you passed it, you passed it on your, uh, your daughters oh. into the music too. My daughter, my son-in-law, my grandson is one of his songs was like BBC hit, hit number one song last couple of weeks ago in London, in England. Get so, out. You know, all, yeah, Congratulations. The whole, family, um, the whole family are, yeah, all. And, is, and we inherited it too. It's not just didn't start with me. My ex-husband is a wonderful musician. His family were all musicians. So, yeah. 
Is that a pair of didgeridoo? What's plural for didgeridoo? Didgeridoo yeah. back there? Do you have two? <laughs> didgeridoo. <laughs> uh, um, that's what it is. It's it's one that's um that was made uh, with my friend Lewis Burns, who's uh, uh, an Aboriginal man who came to my house two different times in in Venice, California, and we did workshops there. So the one the wooden one was um a piece of eucalyptus brought from Australia. And the other one is, you know, more. Wow. That's like, special. To, you know, I had to sand it. I made, I made that one, you know, I mean, it's beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Did, did you learn to play it? Not very well. I can get a sound, but I'm not good at circular breathing. <laughs> <laughs> me too. That thing wears I, me out. I could get a totally nice, beautiful tone, but then when I'm at the end of the breath, it stops. <laughs> <laughs> you have so many, uh, amazing instruments behind you too. Yeah. And you know, really to to be, to, you know, I, my real kind of more instruments are more in the mainland. I mean, I just jumped on a plane and came here. So this is just my little, little getaway. That's your, that's your travel. That's your travel pack. Well, it's kind of pretty much everything here lives here. And then I have other things in other places. Yeah. What are some of your other favorites? It's hard to be traveling with a bunch of gear, you know, like, and yeah, that's not a short flight. That's a long flight from no matter where. Like I flew, I flew to Hawaii from, that's when I lived in Denver. So I flew Denver to San Francisco, San Francisco to the big Island. That was a long trip. That was like a day, a day of travel or more. And then back was even worse because you lose the time. Right. Man, it was worth it though. I met a girl who was bartending and she was from San Francisco. And I said, God, you must love it here. And she goes, get me the hell off this island. She goes, I can't stand it. I want to go back. And I'm like, oh, and that kind of was a quick, like, yeah, some people's paradise is another person's hell, I guess. Right. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Seems like I, you love it. <laughs> I love it. And I love, I mean, I really enjoyed being on all the islands that I visited over the last many years that I bet, uh, you know, my heart is really co- here in Kauai and, um, and, you know, partly because I love to get in the water and it's a small Island. You can, you know, like if there's a North swell, you can go to North beaches, but if there's a South swell, it's not that far. It doesn't take that long to get to where those waves are. So, um, nice, nice. big islands, hours and hours, right. As you huge. Know. So. Oh, that's the big island. That's for sure. See, that's so the you're only still al- you're still surfing regularly. Yeah. Uh, yes. Although I gotta say, I've been so kind of busy on the farm lately that I haven't been in the water as much as I would like to, and hope that I, I think we've sort of gotten things into a, a more maintenance rhythm now. At first, it, there was just so much to do when I got here, but now we're kind of so now I just feel like as we get into the spring. And, or, you know, this time, I mean, if it hadn't been pouring in the last couple of days, I would have been in the water every day. But, you know, I get so into it that I don't want to do anything else. So I had to kind of hold back a little and get things more together on the farm. Yeah. What was the, what was the experience like of COVID? You said in March, you, you headed there in March of 2020. Yeah. So when you got there. What was it like? Um, you know, I know there are a lot of places that were like, we don't want anybody from the mainland here, right? Like even parts of the continental U.S. I heard about places where 
a New Yorker had a summer home in Maine and they were trying to get there and everyone was like, turn around and go back. We don't want you in our town. Was Hawaii like that? Well, first of all, each island sort of did things differently. Um, and Kauai did more of a shutdown than all the other islands. Um, and so there was much more, um, there was a long quarantine if you came here. Um, and of course it's evolved from last March till now. Yeah. Now there are two or three programs that you can go from, like say if you're in the mainland, you could take a neg take a negative test before you fly go and make sure it's negative, then fly to another island, stay there for three days and then take a second test within 72 hours of getting on a plane to come here. And if you've done that, then you don't have to quarantine here. But there are two other programs where you you can come and you can quarantine at a, a like a resort bubble, ha arriving with a negative test, stay in a resort bubble for three days, take another test, and then you're free. Otherwise, you quarantine for 10 days. And that means if, if you live here and you've been traveling and you come back, you stay home for 10 days. And, and the, you know, the National Guard and the police come and check on you. So we have our island, you know, really thanks to our mayor and, you know, who is and because, you know, this is a tourist economy. So shutting down that much has really brought hardships to a lot of people. But but our mayor has been really um, brave, I think, you know, and, and not gone. Some of the other islands were much more loose in terms of all this. And we have had like we have one known COVID case on the island right now. We've had, I think, two hospitalizations since March, one death of an elder who passed away. And we oh never had any. We haven't you know, I mean, we, it's been very. Yeah, perfect. We only have nine ICU beds on the whole island. We could be overrun by if one family got sick, really. It's got to suck to be the one person with COVID on the island. Well, I think it was somebody who came, a child who came. Oh, and, shit. You know, That's awful. You no, know, but they're not even in the hospital. I mean, they're home quarantining. And I, it's, right, it's, right. You know, That's or, awesome. That's really unbelievable, isn't it? That's great. So yeah. <clears throat> two weeks of quarantine at your house is fruit salad and didgeridoo, I mean, sounds like a pretty damn good quarantine to me. The way it is with our land, you can be anywhere on the land, you know? Uh, so, you know, so it, it Man, yeah. it's beautiful. <laughs> She's just been working a little yeah. too hard <laughs> on that farm. <laughs> you know, one of the things I always wonder about with folks that move to Hawaii is that, like, you know, you look at, like, Dead Tour, not a lot of Hawaii dates. So like, is there a lot of like missing out on things or are you just so like, I mean, you literally, you live in paradise. So it's like, <laughs> oh, well, I can't get to, but you know, there wasn't a lot of live streams and all that other stuff. You kind of had to make a choice. Like, is there, is mainland living easy to give up for well, Hawaii? Well, it's for me, it depends on. Yeah. I mean you, of course. Yeah. You know, yeah I mean, when I moved here in 72, um, I ended up living in a little valley. I mean, there was no reception of any. I, I really never had a television anyway, but you couldn't have one there, you know. And, you know, I at that point got really into Hawaiian music and Slack Key. And, and, um, and, and so 
and you know just more of an acoustic energy yeah totally um, and so and and surfing and so you know i guess it just you know that was in the 70s i mean i didn't you know in um in 1980 um bobby weir came over with um matt kelly and you know matthew kelly and mm -hmm. um another friend of ours steve canella and um bobby stayed at my house for a while he played with i had a country band at the time called the Silverados and Bobby played for with us for a few shows and then he ended up going back and then Matt Kelly basically stayed and played with us for a year um <laughs> wow. but um but I'd been away since 72 I mean I'd, I'd come back to see my parents but I hadn't gone to concerts or anything you know really um I just hung out with family in San Francisco for a week or two and then come back. So I didn't really know what had happened with the Grateful Dead. And Bobby, was, he was staying with me and he was telling me how that they had just, he was trying to explain to me about deadheads and all of it. I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, no, like we're playing shows all over. And I'm like, well, who's coming? You know, <laughs> Everybody. He's like, he's like, no, we just played like, you know, nine straight nights at the Radio City Music Hall. And I'm like, who comes? <laughs> really? I, I was like, I had, I had no idea, you know. No. Um, and you know, I mean, it was different when I left in you know seventy two. It was like it that, that seemed it wasn't happening, and um, and it was funny. <laughs> I think when you're on an island like that. Uh, who's missing out is all a matter of perspective. <laughs> sure, of course. I think I would have, I think that'd be the thing. I've had conversations about that, about how like you miss a lot of concerts, but it's, yeah. that's okay. Uh, my sister lived there for eight years and my mom was there for two and a half years. This is a long ages ago. And um, she told me, she was like, don't go till you've accomplished everything you want to accomplish in life. Because right. once you get there, you will not come back. And I still haven't been. I'm 56. <laughs> I want to go. I want to go. The kids got to get old enough. But I imagine raising a kid there was really was great. Nice. You know, I mean, I actually, um, a couple of years in the living, well, I moved here when Tora was two. And then by the time she was three, I realized that there needed to be a better school. And I started sending out you know, feelers for who might want to help start a school. And I got, ended up getting together with six other women. And we, we started a private school, which just turned 44 about three weeks ago. And I mean, really so, 12 awesome. students in, in an old sugar company store building that we rented, but now it has a 40 acre campus and 420 kids. And oh, whoa, whoa, well, whoa, you started a school. A general school, like a like a like a K through twelve, yeah, for well, twelve we started, students. We were licensed for K through twelve, but we started with like K through four, and then every year we added a year for the yeah. next. Year. Yeah, yeah. As oh the my. kids get older, <laughs> we yeah. gotta add another year. And we have more kids, you know. Now you go, I mean, you go to the you go to the local like telephone pole and like wanted fifth grade teacher. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's amazing! Oh my yeah. god, great school. It's one of the one of the great schools of Hawaii, you know. So, did you, did you come from an education background, or no? Really, didn't. Uh, I mean, no. I came from. Uh, I came from Ace of Cups, so I knew that 
you could do something that had never been done. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, perfect. Especially a bunch of women together, you know, sure, totally be unstoppable. So I didn't, we had no money. We had, you know, some of the, some of the people, some of the other women had, you know, were teaching credentials, masters in education, things like that. So we had members of the group who had different skills. Um, yeah, oh, that's amazing. Or the founding the violin school. That, that's awesome. so wonderful. Isn't that, isn't that like just so Otil and I always talk about, um, well, I've told him about how there's, I owe my education to a woman who kept me in college and I, where I was ready to drop out. And I felt like I was in college cause I kind of had to be. And then I met her and she was my advisor and she was, got me into Native American literature, African theater from the diaspora and Harlem Renaissance. And it it was just yet another woman in a long line of women that have just been the most badass, like, I I know what you need people in my life for my grandmother and my mother and my sisters, like my wife, just a long line. And uh, she was the one who, who I really owe everything to when it comes to education. It's beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. how many people can say that about you now? I mean, you literally are there, you know. Well, that's true. I mean, I have to say, <laughs> you know, my education in terms of college was definitely interrupted by meeting Kent Casey. You know? <laughs> my guy. I didn't go back till a lot later to finish. <laughs> that's the perfect thing to interrupt well, it for. If, if I'd met one of those women, <laughs> I would have stayed in college better. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, but so, your life has been just one, uh, uh, just uh, doing some research on you. I really was having so much fun that the whole story of your life is every different amazing chapter. You know, you start out in San Francisco, but then the Hawaii chapter, the L- the L.A. part of your life when you went to music school there was really fascinating. That story you told about uh, Ray Brown <laughs> and Joe Pass <laughs> and all that. I'm so glad you heard that story. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a jazz, you know, I came from, my parents were really into jazz, they're from New York, so I've really, when you said, oh yeah, Joe Pass was teaching at the school, I was like, what? You know, you because that people about that started as a, really a small guitar, jazz guitar school, that's what the Musicians Institute started as. And so and how old were you when you went there? I was 33. I'd been here, you know, for... 11 years on island and I, and I, it was 19. Um, I had gone to, well, basically what happened was I was in a band here um, with a, a guy, the drummer, uh, Roger um, had been, his a Berkeley graduate and I'd only started playing bass in 1980. And so um, I, you know, I shifted from kind of rhythm guitar, slacky guitar, whatever to bass. And which I always loved bass, but you know, we had a wonderful bass player in Ace of Cups, so I didn't play it. Um, so what I had been playing for a couple of years in this country band and, and then another oh, kind of a rock band, a rock band. And um, this drummer, Roger, you know, said, you know, you would love music school. And it was sort of, you know, one of those things that I had to take that in because I sort of thought in a way that I missed it, you know, because I was 33 and he said, you yeah. should go to music school. You would love it. And, you know, then, it, then what happened was I had gone to LA to hear a friend of mine conduct a, a music score that he had written. And I just auditioned for the school, just kind of on a lark. I mean, I just thought, well, I should just try it. 
And and that same week, the island of Kauai was hit by Hurricane Eva, which was the first of the two big hurricanes that have happened in the last, I don't know, 60 years. And the house that I was renting at the time was blown away, um, or the roof was blown off. Um, The clubs that the band that I was in was playing, they were all destroyed. So there was, you know, it just sort of felt like the island just went, you're going to L.A. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. So yeah. when you got in the school, you you ended up getting in after auditioning, right? I, it wasn't too hard to get in. I thought it would have been harder. I, you know, they, you know, I, because you could come in and you could, it was a small enough, especially the base program and especially coming in in the spring semester, which I did, was a small enough group that if you worked, um, you know, when I got done with that year, it was a, a year long program. I was like, okay, now I should start again, you know, <laughs> and I felt like I'd made some progress, but yeah, but, um, it was amazing. And as you said, Joe pass, you know, did office hours in this little, you know, eight by 10 room, wow. you know, two or three days a week, you could just go sit on the floor and listen to Joe pass. For me, I just sit there and listen to guitar players or, you know, and I mean, every, all of those, you know, Tommy Tedesco, mm-hmm. I mean, there were just so many senior, wonderful LA musicians mm. that were on staff there, Ralph Humphreys, um, mm-hmm. but also um, um, like, a, um, I'm just going blank on um, Joe, you know, the father of all the Toto guys. Um, Joe Porcaro. Porcaro, yeah. 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 That's was, right. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. You know, it was, a, it, and then the school eventually really started to grow and then it moved buildings and it just got, I'm sure, really good. You know, there's benefits of it, but it was really intimate at that time. You know, there was only a bass program, a percussion program, and a guitar program. So there wasn't vocals yet. There wasn't recording. There wasn't all the technology stuff. So it was an intimate place. I was like, I think there were three women and 600 guys. Wow. I was the only woman in the bass program when I was there. (laughs) Really? Please tell that story about Ray Brown though. It just, I almost fell out of my chair. (laughs) You got to the end of it. I was like, what? Oh, I was, I was, um, after I graduated, I, I, I was going to work on my reading which has now gotten all worse again. But at the time I was really working on it. And I, there was this wonderful teacher, Mr. Valenti, who was the conductor of the South Bay Symphony. But he was a jazz player and he was a, I think he was a trumpet player. Um, um, but um, I got recommended to him. So I used to go down for lessons. And after, after he'd be on, um, after he'd be on keyboard and I'd be playing my bass, and then at the end, he'd say, well, well, let's just play some tunes at the end of my lesson. And he'd pull up the real book and I'd like, you know, walk my way through what I could. We weren't doing giant steps, right? We were just doing <laughs> you know, more simple tunes. And and he was working on his piano chops. So yeah. we did that, you know, every week for a while. And I started, and he had told me he had a casuals band that, you know, that played weddings and bar mitzvahs and whatever around LA. So I started thinking, you know, I'm kind of getting this real book thing and, you know, maybe I could be his bass player, you know, or at least sometimes. So I finally got up the courage to say, so, you know, so, you know, who's your bass player in your, in your casual band? And he said, Ray Brown. And I'm like, 
Ray Brown plays weddings and bar mitzvahs with you. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh no, you know. And that's, that's LA, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you can go and hear the best players in the world playing some. And it was like, you know, I, you know, coming from San Francisco and, and Kauai, you know, that, you know, to, I'm sure New York is that way too. Totally. Yeah. Those places yeah. that all the players that are that, that level then. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. all of our fans out there, you guys, uh, since you do live in the age of Google on your phone, <clears throat> Google the name Ray Brown, Upright Bass. And see the list of absolute legends this guy played with. I bet I can't imagine how you felt. Like, yeah, you're like, oh, never mind. Yes, <laughs> you got I can know. Because LA was, you know, for a lot of bands, it was pay to play, you know? Sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's isn't one that, of the good isn't that so interesting? The pay to play model. Like, some people just don't even know what that means. You know, it's like everybody in LA, at least at that time, it was like about being seen by, trying to get on the radar of industry and stuff. And that was never my, oh. you know, I think it was, that was like, we just wanted to play music. And so, That's and then the it was the same thing. So I, that was just a whole different world. And, you know, I didn't love it. <laughs> so that's so, what got you into the yoga then, right? You decided to. Well, I always had practiced yoga always since I was a teenager, but I never thought of it as a livelihood. I thought it was just my personal practice and expression and, and way to, you know, work to this instrument, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but when I got to, when I got to music school, some friends took me to Bikram's studio in LA, which was not very far from where I was living in Hollywood going to school and the ocean was really far away. And I just couldn't be surfing there for all kinds of reasons. It was cold and it was dirty for me. So I just started going to Beacom's every day as a workout. And then eventually he asked me to start teaching there. And then I ended up privately working with some of his students and it just kind of grew from. Nice. You yeah. taught some you know, uh, super famous people. <laughs> uh, you know, that was just sort of, uh, it just happened. It wasn't anything that I intended or, they happen, you know. I just get a phone call from people and say, "Hey, I heard about you from so and so." You know, oh, nice. That was cool, but I had I cracked up, but just from thinking of the image when you mentioned Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I just had an image of you and him standing next to each funny. other. Like and, doing... Yeah, we there were there were some really great moments that, um, you know, like if he would be like in a forward bend, and you know, for me, if I want, if he wanted a little like pressure for me to add to it you know i was like a fly on him so so he would do it back by a wall and then i would walk my feet up the wall and put my my hands on his back so i'd have push off on the wall and have more you know um i'd be like i'd be doing almost basically a handstand on his back (laughs) at an angle just to give him a little more oomph you know (laughs) <laughs> you could probably just walk under him while he was doing downward talk. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. He so, lived there too, you know, at the time. He both he had a home right near where we live here. So we, we practiced both on Kauai and in LA, you know. Oh, that's great. 
Thanks for listening. We'll be right back with more on Comes a Time. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at Smart Wool. For more than 25 years, Smart Wool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They're here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. So I can't hear the words Ken Kesey without asking more because uh, <laughs> that's, that's my guy. Yeah. And well, uh, I, re- I know you spent time with him. That was I did. He changed my whole life. And uh, I, I, I've recently had the chance to talk. I, I went out to, well, geez, recently, I guess now 20, early 2019, or I went out to Oregon to do shows and I stopped by Ken Babb's place and hung out with him for a bit and just caught up. And uh, it was so cool to be able to kind of reminisce and talk about Keezy and all that. But yeah, I got a chance to, I spent some time with him. And uh, your stories of that, I heard some of them in there. They're, yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. Welcome right into the family and that's it. <laughs> instantly like looked me up and down and was like, You're one of those cigarette smoking, beer drinking New Englanders, huh? And I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, All right, now I know what I'm dealing with. And from then on we were like fast friends. But it was a uh definitely like a mentor. I was just there to I went there with a list of questions to ask him and about twenty minutes into being there, I tore the list up and threw it out. And I was like, I, who, who am I to ask him? I'm just here to listen. But I'd love to hear, how did you, like, when did you guys kind of, uh, when did yeah. your paths cross? Well, um, so I, I, you know, I went to my last two years of high school in Palo Alto. And so just to give you that background, yeah. I, um, you know, I was into folk music and I was um, in the Stanford Folk Music Club while I was still in high school and and I was really a political activist from the time I was like 14. I was on my first picket line at 14. Nice. Um, for a civil rights picket line. Um, so when I was in Palo Alto, um, I like, I used to go up to the tangent, which was a club at the corner of the street that I lived on my senior year. And that's where Jerry played with his, um, bluegrass band and his jug band. So I was up there all the time. So, and also a uh, pig pen at the time had a band called the Zodiacs and I loved them. They were an R&B band, R&B yeah. rock, you know, and I um, actually hired them for my high school graduation party. Um, <laughs> so That's I so go neat. back with all those guys. Sure. To those days. Um, but then I, uh, I started Berkeley in the fall of 1964. UC Berkeley, not Berkeley Music School, but UC Berkeley. Berkeley, And um, that was the fall of the free speech movement. And I went there because of the political, I was, I went there to, you know, to become more of a educated political activist. And, um, but I got, I was immediately involved in the free speech movement and got arrested at Sproul Hall and, um, so that was a very educational semester for me um, in terms of activism. Uh, and then in the spring, I knew some people who 
were taking acid and I started taking acid. And so I had just, I turned 18. So, so I was playing music with some guys. I wasn't in their band, but I played with them a lot. And um, um, so we took this, I think I probably shouldn't get into the whole story, but we took a pretty radical trip together, <laughs> out of which I ended up um, working. I, I had I had a kind of a psychedelic acid experience where, I, but I ended up with two black eyes and my face was kind of messed up. Oh no! Falling. Um, and uh, at that the end of that week, we were scheduled to go down to uh, Asilomar, which is down by Monterey, California, to this conference ground because our guitar player's dad was the head of the, the Unitarian Theological Seminary and they were having a conference. And he asked us to bring instruments down there and play some. So we drove down there and onto this conference ground and there was this psychedelic bus um, all decked out and all these people in bright colors. We drove onto this property and we drove up to them. I was like, what are you? Who are you? <laughs> what and are you? I love that question. <laughs> <laughs> yep, no, you know, no, that of was course. The first one, right? So there was no bus anywhere, at least in the U.S. You know, there's sure. buses in India that are pretty great. But yeah. um, in the U.S., you know, they were like yellow and black or green and white, you know, as right. far as I saw. <laughs> or had bars in the windows. Right. You know, exactly. So to see that bus and those people. Um, anyway, so that that night, uh, Kesey walked up to me and um, well, I didn't know who he was. And, and But he walked up and he goes, what happened to you? And I said, oh, because you got to realize I had two black eyes. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And he said, well, try me. And then I said something and he said, I want to meet you in a little bit. So after this little event that we were part of was over, he said, let's go. We walked down to the beach and spent the night on the beach. And um, in the morning, he took me into where everybody else was staying. And he said, this is Denise. She knows. <laughs> yeah, Keezy. <laughs> and, um, so we've played some music that weekend, the band did. I went back to, we all went back to Berkeley and on Monday and about a couple of few nights later, Kesey showed up at my apartment and she said, I've come to get you. You're going to, you're coming on the bus. Oh. <laughs> 64. You said, huh? Graham. <laughs> <laughs> That's the year I was born. 64. Did you have a prankster well, name? I was actually 65 by then. It was like June of 65. Oh, so God. You, you were six months old, don't you? <laughs> My parent. Yeah, wow. Did you have a prankster? Were you given a prankster uh, name? Yeah, it, it was Mary Microgram. That's what Keezy oh, said. Oh, Mary Microgram. Before, oh, okay. Before I even got, before we crossed the bridge into Lahan, he said, your, your name is Mary Microgram. Oh, God. He is the greatest man. Mary Microgram. I love it. It's That's just such good. an unbelievable. That's the same dude. I mean, really, it's just so wild that, you know, and when we talked to, we had MG on the pot, Mountain Girl, Carolyn. I interview with her. And, 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 you know, it's just such, such a cool thing that just happens to be the throughput of just, she knows, he knows it's availability. It's being ready for the moment and going with it. And, you know, I was at Darien Lake at fish 97 when, when Keezy went on stage with the band and people were walking by the bus, like it was no big deal. 
And I'm like, are you idiots out of your mind? Like, do you know we're all here because of this guy? <laughs> you know? And it's just like, I was like, tell me more, tell me more. Like, I was like, you gotta let me on the bus. Like, you got, you know, like I, I was like a, my tail was wagging. It was, you know, but then, yeah, he just has that way of kind of like, he sees like, yep, you, you, you know what we're about, you know? And then he opens the door. Wild. You know, I got to, uh, spent a lot of time actually teaching at your McCalkinen's guitar camp in Ohio. Yes. You had to have spent some time with him and yes, those we did. guys. Well, you know, we were, we were supposed to play there last summer. I mean, and we're still on schedule for this coming summer, but, um, at fur piece. Yeah. 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 We've been trying to go play at fur piece and, you know, so, you know, and Yorma played on our, well, we sang on volunteers and I did the arrangements for his song, um, the background vocals parts for the song um, Turn My Life Down on his Volunteers album. So we sang on that with, with them and then we toured with them. And um, and then all these, you know, 50 years later, Yorma and Jack both played on our first album um, that came out two years ago, the Ace of Cups. So, oh, yeah, so we great. have both on there, yeah. That is awesome. Yeah, I haven't seen Jorm and Jack in a while. It's damn pandemic. But uh, yeah, that wow, they played it on your record. That's really cool. Yeah. It's amazing how things come. Your life is truly amazing. Like wow. I was just smiling as I went through each era of it. And then now you're like <laughs> doing it again. And you got the band back together. And uh, it's really amazing. You got Jorm and Jack to play on your album. So, well, you know, I would say who else played on it. Um, see, Charlie Musselwhite played some harmonica. You know, everybody on our album is either, either we played with them in the old days or they're one degree off. Like Steve Kimmott yeah. played on our album. Yeah. But, and, you know, we were different in age, you know. So sure, we, by, the time, by the time we left, he was showing up there. But, um, so he, but he played with the people that we played with, you know. And yeah. so we're one degree off, but Kimok and I are like you and uh, you and Bobby O'Teal because you guys share a birthday, right? Oh, you and Kimok share a birthday. Yeah. No, it's it's actually Mayor John Mayor and Bob John share Mayor? a birthday. Okay, yeah, right. And if, yeah, wow, yeah. you and Steve have the same because I've played with Steve a bunch, and He's his amazing. son plays in my solo band half Oregon, the time. Right? Yeah, he plays yeah. drums in my solo band half the time. I love so. them. No, they come and stay with me on the farm here, the family. I love so it. we had, we have, you know, and Steve and I stay up till like three or four in the morning playing music and, and just, you know, he's, he's like a soul brother. Like we've, we've been through many lifetimes together, you know? Yeah. It's funny. Cause I had that feeling when I was watching uh, an interview, I guess you did it with bass player magazine or bass musician magazine or something like one of those bass mags. And I I had that feeling. I was like, oh, yeah, she's like family, you know. And I now that we actually get to talk together, it just grows because it's just having the, the people in common. It's really beautiful. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get to jam together sometime. You're a uh, mean harmonica player yourself. I know you got Charlie Musselwhite, but. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. yeah, I love playing. I saw you ripping it. <laughs> <laughs> What are some of your other uh, instruments that you don't have here that you like to play? Well, I pretty much have the instruments here that I like to play, but it like the act, 
you know, like I have the, this space here is a Mike Dirt um, road worn model. It's kind of like a telly. Mm, yeah. To P base, but it's, but, um, and then, but in, in LA, I have a music man. That was my first bass that I play a lot. That's that way. That's got flat wound strings. Um, yeah. Round wounds. So, yeah. And I have uh, also my musical kind of mentor now muse dear friend is Andrew Goucher. Do you know, Andrew? I do. We, I think we did some in Italy together. Yeah. He's like my, my, you know, my base God friend, whatever, you know, I love Andrew and his whole family. How and did you meet him? I met him in a really fun way. I, um, I was taking um, the Berkeley Music Online Bass, bass Program and um, I became, well, um, Danny Moe was, uh, I was teaching, he was teaching the class I was doing, an R&B class and, and Danny and I became friends and, um, and he sent me this track. He said, Denise, you're going to love this track. Just sent it, and it was it was the band Mary Mary, uh, uh, like doing Wade in the Water, and Danny had done a transcription of it, and I just heard this bass part, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible! And he, Danny, I said, who is this guy? And he goes, you know, Andrew Goucher. So I sent it to a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Lambs, who at at the time um, he plays keys in a lot of gospel situations around LA and I sent it to Jeff and I said, listen to this bass player. And he wrote that because, oh yeah, that's Andrew Gaucher. I'm like, you know him? He goes, yeah, he lives in LA. And I'm like, you, you should friend him. So I, you know, immediately on Facebook, I'm like, you don't know me, but I got your track. And I write to him, I say, if you're ever playing anywhere, and this happened to be on the 4th of July, about 10 or 11 years ago. And I, you know, on a Sunday and I, and I said, if you ever playing anywhere, and he wrote back immediately and he goes, well, I host a jam every Sunday at the uh, townhouse, you know, uh, on La Tijera or off on Centinella, you know, and we go from six to about 10 or 11 and we're doing it tonight. So, you know, and I said, I'm there. I, love it. <laughs> so I went to that show and I never since then have ever missed a show of Andrews unless I'm out of L.A. And nice. I never missed like townhouse for me on Sundays is my church. Yeah. At the beginning. And if I was playing a show like out in Palm Springs, I would race to get to the townhouse on a Sunday to get there, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, Andrew has opened so many soul doors for me. He's just taken me with him. Like I got to go with him to Joel Smith's um, memorial service in Oakland. Do you know? Did you wow. know Joel Smith? I didn't know him, no, but you knew who he was. Yeah, yeah. The Hawkins, and you know. So you know, I just got to. I've been able to be, you know, because Andrew opened those doors, or because I came with him. I've just been able to, you know, be able to go places and and be, you know, welcomed um, in just the most beautiful beautiful communities. You know, it seems so. like that's the story of your life, <laughs> as you trace it. You know, all the way through, it's really something. Yeah. And, and you bring every, like every stage that you go through, you uh, at you incorporate all these things into it. Like for if when you're in Hawaii, then all the Hawaiian music and the slack key guitar, and then in LA the gospel and the funk and the, you know. And what was this thing you mentioned, Kurtan? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. 
Yeah, kirtan. That's the kirtan. music that the in Sanskrit, the chanting that has always been part of the kind of bhakti or devotional yoga practices. So uh-huh. kirtan is is an, a, a traditional call and response chanting, usually some kind of simple like mantra, um, praising the divine in some form of a god or goddess, you know, in the Hindu tradition. And um, Westerners, as Westerners got into more and more of yoga or asana practice, the physical practices also really got more into the other practices that were part of the yoga tradition. And kirtan really um, evolved in the West. You know, there's a lot of conversation about it. It's like, because the way it's done in the West often is not the most traditional way as it would be done in India. So is that cultural appropriation or is that music evolving? And, you know, but I've had the honor of playing with some just awesome kirtan artists. One of them is a a woman named Cece White and she does what she calls soul kirtan. I was going to say, if black people do it, they're going to do it black. (laughs) I got to play on CC's albums. Uh, This is Soul Kirtan. Actually, Kat Dyson, and it was often the guitar player. So Kat and I played a lot of shows with CC and Michael Jerome Moore on drums. And um, it's, you know, some of my favorite experiences getting to play with that that band. Michael Jerome Moore and I went and we were playing a festival up in Oregon and we played with... Jaya Utah for his set, which was like an hour and a half. Cece for her set, which was about two hours. And then we played for the All-Star Jam. So we played like basically straight through for about six hours. And what, and do you know Michael Drum more? I don't. Um... He's a fantastic drummer and just amazing. He plays a lot with um, Liz Wright. And he also plays with, um, um, oh God, oh, <clears throat> uh, Richard um, Thompson. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, but Michael's amazing. So, but we we were the rhythm section for this like three shows in a row, you know. <laughs> so, like we've done, you know, like marathons together, and you know, That's this so cool, yeah, you know. So those have been those were fantastic, you know. So the kirtan world has a lot of different facets, but um, you know, especially when you you're, it's all call and response. So there's someone who leads them in the audience. Everybody else repeats that line mm. and you just get into a trance like place, you know, because, yeah. and the thing about Sanskrit is just the sounds themselves kind of activate your, your field and your, your, I mean, the, your, just where the sounds are made in your body. Yeah. 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 That's the, the mantra, my TM right. mantra is a Sanskrit two syllable sound. And it really, I mean, for me personally, it's like the, the most important thing I have, but it is something that just kind of it's, I've never heard anything else that I know of, but it is something that to me is like, it just kind of, it's, it was always there. Um, that language, like Devanagri, the actual, which is the alphabet mm. Devanagri. And it's, it's, it's considered to be the language of the gods, you know, the, the actual, and where the sounds are made in your, in your body, um, and how the sounds are like where they live in your mouth and your, you know, all of that is to activate your consciousness. Yeah. And, you know, it's said in Sanskrit that, that in the last 
Kali Yuga, in the last golden age, when when there was not the political situation that we have now, and there was much more, there was a sense of the unity of all beings and all creation, that when the world started to descend out of that time in these big cycles, um, they were looking for how do you take the wisdom and understanding and knowledge of this of this era, of this epoch, and and in a sense, couch it in something so it's not, so it's still with people. And that's what Sanskrit is supposed to be, is that wow, language actually that. activates that. You know, I don't know if that's true, but I, I kind of feel it. And I think you do too, you know. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's a science. You know, we have separated these things. <laughs> and they're not actually separate. We just have to do a lot of work to keep them separate. But it's yeah. a science, you know. That's why it still works. You know, I have to say, and I want to ask you this because I think it would help a lot of people. Um, a lot of people think very um, old and feel very old. And you are so full of youthful energy and exuberance and you're changing everything over and over and you're constantly like growing. And a lot of people stop. A lot of people stunt themselves and I'm wondering if you have any, like, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm hearing you, but at the same time, I'm kind of like really admiring you. Like you've got such like a, like a really awesome, like, do you have any, like, what's your, what, what do you think is, is the thing that we, that gets in our way the most, you know? Yeah. What, what do you think? What's your, do you have anything that any, any advice for like, what do you, how do you keep yourself like always evolving and always changing and learning. Like, it seems like you're, you're, you're doing so much. And, you know, well, okay. A few things like in a, in a physical sense, um, you know, I don't, you can maybe notice that I'm, I'm on the floor here. Yeah. Like I try and do my best to basically hardly ever sit in chairs. I live on the earth as much as I can and, you know, carpet with some pillows around. Awesome. So that's part of my process of keeping fluid as much as possible, because, you know, when you, the more you can do your best to keep your physicality fluid and then that helps you because it, you know, it's hard. It's not like you, I mean, there are beings who are, you know, transcendently brilliant and fluid and their bodies may be in a wheelchair or lying in a bed. I mean, absolutely I like yeah. that. So it's, but, but to the degree that you have any can say over these things, if you can keep your own, your physical, your physical being mobile, it helps kind of circulate your energy, you know, and your sure. flow. So I think there's something to be said for that. Um, and, um, and I, and being, you know, as much as possible in get having some nature energy, you yeah. know, for me, like, I think just, you know, being on the farm and working on the garden and the trees and everything that, that helps me when I'm, but when I'm in other places, like, you know, I try and, you know, like keep some of that going wherever I am if possible. Yeah. I'm like, I'm vegan. I've been a vegetarian since I was 18. I've been a vegan for the last 15 years. 
you know, I don't know that that would work for everybody, but it sure works for me. So I think finding out what really nourishes you. Yeah. Physical level. And, and then what nourishes you, you know, kind of energetically and psychically and spiritually yep. finding those connections mm. and, um, and then just not buying into some story that you are too old to do anything. And I, I think, you know, for my band, for Ace of Cups, I'm the youngest one in the band. Our drummer is the eldest, right? She's 77 now and she kicks balls. Awesome. It's fantastic. Like, you know, like I just was talking to her a couple days ago and she found a new drum teacher that she met online and she's like totally, you know, she doesn't stop growing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and she's got some new recording equipment and she's learning tech, new technology and way more than I am, you know, she's, so it's like, you know, I think, these notions of what you can and can't do. I mean, you know, we all of us women in our band, we've had to break through all that just to be the Ace of Cups to begin with, right. you know, because yeah. we never saw a woman's band till we were one, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, all, you know, the, these notions of limitations, you know, and now at this point in our life at, you know, at age, 70 i'm 74 and i'm the youngest right and so uh i think the kind of glass ceiling or at least the stereotypes that we're busting up now is the stereotypes of age whereas earlier it was more sexism sure. and now it's ageism which is especially ageism combined with sexism because <laughs> a 74 year old guy in a rock band as you well know teal and people uh, yeah. like oh he's punk you know <laughs> <laughs> so you know we are like you know on our mission to like break that stuff up too um it's amazing yeah no it's super important and i think that there's it's interesting that like because you kind of like the reality you grow up in and the way that you see maybe aunts or uncles or grandparents or something kind of like settle into a role. And then you learn at that, they're like, oh, wow, they were 45 or whatever when they kind of, you know, and then you get to be up like near where they were and you're like, oh, shit, like I only have a couple years left. You know what I mean? But then you see people who are just totally not paying attention to any of that. Right. And you have to unlearn all that stuff. I think that's a big issue, especially with like in entertainment. It's yes. kind of like, a, yeah, you kind of aged yourself out, you know, right. and it's like, no, I haven't. I mean, yeah. I just started learning things. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, like any indigenous cultures or any cultures where there's some wisdom, you know, the elders are like the, the repository of wisdom and skill. I mean, you know, what? No. So, you know, no. and, you know, I think like these days, a lot of women, not a lot, but a number of women artists or writers in different fields are finally getting recognition, whether it was, you know, that, whether they're painters or whether they're writers or people whose, whose work was, was um, ignored in favor of the men of that era. Now those women are finding finally being discovered, you know. Mm. So we haven't had because in a sense of the culture of particularly the patriarchy in that sense, we haven't had as many women to look up to and women elders to look up to that 
you know, that we're on equal footing with. Uh, I just posted something the other day. There's a, a, a film that I just donated to being made. There was the first people who were sent to Auschwitz were 999 teenage girls from out from Slo Slovakia wow. who were told that they were going to do some job and they were the first women and they were all teenage girls. Their stories have been told until now wow. because this, a lot of the stories of the Holocaust were stories by men. So it was a more of a patriarchal storytelling. Yeah. So and I think there's a, there's a lot that, I mean, it's certainly true in terms of, of uh, social unrest and civil rights in this country that we're finally, as a country, able to hear some of these stories that were just not in the textbooks and not in the curricula. And, and um, yeah. so for all of us, we're all going to be enriched when these very narrow ideas of what matters and who does something of importance or who who what matters um has really expanded you know we it's awesome that's yeah. so cool. yeah because they end up saying basically uh you don't matter you don't matter because you're too old you don't matter because you're a woman because you're black because you're poor because you're blah 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 it's like i'm breathing so i matter to whoever made me and made all yeah. of this, you know. So. <clears throat> and that's so cool that you're the you're the baby in the band. <laughs> at seventy four. At seventy four, that's kick ass, man. That's really really great. And you're yeah. you're an inspiration, and you've experienced a million lives. And I keep thinking over and over about how everybody that's in this Grateful Dead web, you know what I mean? You happen to run into Keezy in a parking lot. You know, like that, that doesn't just happen. Yeah. No. You know was, what I mean? Do you know we're my theory yeah, about, uh, like, yeah, no. Yeah. It was a little more than that because I've been really exploring psychedelics. I mean, we met on that level. Sure. That's you what know? I mean. Exactly. But the thing is, I really didn't have anybody that I had some, you know, I've been exploring realms that I had no words for. Mm -hmm. That was the beginning of that. But I have to say, you know, I rode shotgun on the bus from, you know, all the time and on this little i sat on this little black box next to neil oh boy many many thousands of miles probably on you know in that thing and then hanging out with jerry a lot you know that was one of the craziest things about going to see keezy was at the time they were working on the tapes in search of a cool place it was called and basically it was just all this old reel-to-reel -reel footage all just the camera was fixated on Neil, on Cassidy and he's just chatterboxing away. He's yeah. like, like if, a, like if a Ritalin could talk, well, he was it was just, hard, it, you know, it, it was like, he's just nonstop. Didn't even was, have to take a breath. The, you know, cause there would be speakers in the bus, right? So what he would, he'd be mic'd, And so you could hear, and it was like, as the world was coming toward us, he would, be relating to every sound and visual coming in like the a train going by or a bus or a truck with a honk horn or what what every that and then and everything that was on the bus yeah. you know and so it was like he was this weaver who wove it all together and it it was like going back to what we were just sort of talking about it was like it, you might think all of those things were separate but when he would be rapping it would be all 
one. Cowboy Neil at the wheel. Oh, man. Wavy Gravy was also my great inspiration uh, and dear friend on the bus. So Wavy and I had maybe the the most psychedelic adventures that I ever had were with Wavy. And, that's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. He's still, of course, really dear to us. We, we, uh, he's his song "Basic Human Needs" is on our new album. You know, the "Sing Your Dreams" that just came out, and um, we made an amazing video with Jesse Block and all of us, uh, with our and producer Dan Shea, um, of his song "Basic Human Needs" with this really wonderful gospel chorus, and and we 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 love that song. And in fact, Diane, our drummer when we first before we even first started doing our recording for the first album she said we have to get wavy in the studio and sing basic human needs and that that's how we we were able to do that and um then built the track around around him dan did but we always felt that if there was one song that if we never got to record anything else that basic human needs would be that song you know, Excellent. It's the, the message, you know? Yeah, totally. So great to chat with you. This is, yeah. if you listen to Comes the Time, you know we always go, you got to come back and hang with us another time. Would you? I'd love to. I mean, awesome. there's all kinds of things, that, you know, now because I listened to Bobby's talk with you. I listened to Mountain Girls. There was all, I wanted to talk to you more about the free speech movement. Yeah, you know, we got a lot we need to talk about. Mountain Girls wasn't in berkeley at the time she and so when she said something about the berkeley riots i thought well, those weren't riots in berkeley we had the sit-ins but they weren't riots you know uh, uh, you know just talking about politically what's happening now and bobby's talk about being about peaceful protests i mean yeah like this is stuff like deep in my heart and soul and i would love I, to- I always think the government or in, and whatever other forces they kind of leech on to protests to create violence so then it seems like oh these people are violent it's like no man there's just bad people that leech on to whenever masses gather together no matter how peacefully they mean to do it and uh clearly uh it's uh, it's one of my pet peeves i'm like "Ah, ah, (laughs) those people are criminals yeah exactly and then there's all but in Berkeley, during the free speech movement, there was no, there was no violence. I mean, sure. it was, we sat in, you know, right, and yeah. we sat down around, you know, like 5,000 people sat around a police car that held Jack Weinberg. And we just sat there. Nobody, there was no, you know, it wasn't violent. And when we sat in on Sproul Hall, there was no violence except for getting beat up by the police. Some, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you well, know, and I know that, um, I think it was, Mountain Girl, or maybe maybe Bobby that mentioned Mario Savio to you, and you didn't mm-hmm. know who he was, but I encourage you to listen to some talks. Or that some was, yeah, that was Mountain like, Girl. Yeah, that was yeah. Mountain Girl who mentioned yeah. him. So well, Mario Savio is an amazing, amazing human being. And maybe next, maybe next time when you yeah. come on, to, when we can talk about that, we can uh, see an even larger avocado yeah. to start. <laughs> <laughs> you're incredible. Thank you. Can you tell? Can you tell? Everything. I. You're right. No, that's very true. That's very true. Some of the smaller avocados are. They have the most taste. That's right. It's how you use your avocado. Um, can you tell everybody where they can find your album? Yeah. Um, anywhere that you know, you can go to the Ace of Cups 
thinkingcups.com in order we're going to have some little specials with the new one and the old one and our vinyl is about to come out and a new one that does we have a really fun new music video film by a wonderful filmmaker that will be out too um Asiancups.com. We'd love anybody that's interested to join our sign up for our little community on our website because then we can let people know about things that are coming up, and um, we don't flood people with emails because we don't do that. No. <laughs> you know, we you know we love to be in touch with our circles, and um, so our record label is High Moon Records. What records can be ordered there, and then everywhere else. You know, we're on all the. Streaming oh, services, get, great. Where you can get music. Um, we have vinyl, uh, you know, as well as CD and, and streaming. And we're really, the vinyl of our first album, Ace of Cups, has a 17-page book in it and has amazing artwork from all of our scrapbooks going back to, um, you know, from those days. So, and I it's a double album, so like 26 songs on our first our first album. And then our new one is the 12 songs. And, yeah. Awesome. Oh, it's so nice. great. You're the best. Thank you. Really so cool to hang yeah. with you. And uh, everyone who's listening, please go check out uh, the Ace of Cups, new and old. And uh, we really look forward to having you back. We have a lot more to talk about. We'll share Keezy stories too. We've got a couple great ones. So yeah, We'll talk a little more about mobility. I have a, a website called squateverywhere.com and it's been a song <laughs> that you should hear called The Squat Song. And just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think thank you. <laughs> Can't wait to check it out. <laughs> yeah. All right, you guys. It's it's been a joy. Oh, it went by yeah. too fast. We'll do it again real soon. Just, thank uh, you. Hopefully Bless some you. very soon. Yes. And Kauai. Come yeah. to time goes to Kauai. Oh, let's go. I'll start packing. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.